Okay, let's begin. Um, so, I want to, I'll say it again, I want to thank everybody for coming here. And uh, I think it's uh, worth beginning with the following uh, quotation, which uh, resonates uh, which resonates deeply with me, especially when talking about the subject matter, which will eventually become uh, the main uh, topic of discussion as these shiurim progress. And the quote comes from the great German author, W.G. Sebald, friend of Walter Benjamin. Sebald says that when speaking of the Holocaust, he was discussing the Holocaust, he said that no serious person, no serious person thinks of anything else. What I think that Sebald is tapping into is that... Um, Really, every single thing that we do as uh, Orthodox Jews, especially those who are descended from Ashkenazic Jews or those Jews that, uh, that went through the Holocaust and our own families, many of us are first or second generation descendants of Holocaust survivors. Uh, really, everything that we do in Yahadus, not, uh, not to really overstate the point because I think it can't be overstated, but every single thing we, that we do, I think, is done in the shadow of the Shoah. Now, it's impossible to be constantly uh, conscious of this because the truth is, is, how does one continue in faith? How does one simply get up in the morning and daven? And how does one function as a human being when considering this constantly? It is absolutely overwhelming when you look it directly in the face, as we'll see in a moment. But uh, I want to begin by issuing a few disclaimers because that will eventually be, um, especially when talking about the Piazetsna, talking about the H. Kodesh, that will eventually be really the central theme of our uh, of our shiurim here of our classes here. The first is is that when I was reading one of the uh, accounts of the Warsaw Ghetto, the contemporaneous accounts of the Warsaw Ghetto that uh, Rabbi Doctor Professor Henry Abramson describes and uses so well in his study of the Piazetsna, he talks about the little boy. Uh, this is recorded in the Ringelblum archive. A little boy in the early days of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, before Bar Mitzvah age, little boy that the uh, Germans uh, that the Germans grabbed and uh, publicly, uh, after beating him, uh, they publicly went ahead and they cut off his payas. And uh, and there's much worse things that happened in the Holocaust. There's much worse things that happened in the ensuing years. But the truth is, is that uh, even just thinking of that little boy enough, that little boy himself. Is worth, uh, is worth the following statement, is that some people might say that we Jews talk about the Holocaust too much. The real truth of the matter, I think, is that we don't talk about it enough. And that uh, the only reason we don't talk about it enough is because we have a job to do. And the job that each and every one of us has to do is the continual process of rebuilding Jewish life in the wake of this cataclysm, in the wake of this destruction. So that's the first uh, disclaimer, is that we will be talking about difficult subject matter, painful subject matter, and, uh, and I think for many of us personally, Personal subject matter. So, if this is something that uh, that you don't want on a uh, on a Monday night uh, in the middle of Cheshvan, so uh, one would certainly be excused for that kind of uh, for that kind of recusal from the topic matter that we're going to study. And the second is that uh, for me personally, I know that I talk about this in Shul from time to time. Um, that uh, for me personally, I feel that this is very much in my blood. Uh, just as a, a personal note, that uh, my family, my my Saba Zichron Levracha and my Safta from my father's side. My father is very, very much a child of survivors, if you understand what that means, with all the baggage that comes along with it. My Saba, uh, my Saba especially. Um, so this is this is what we this is what we grew up with in the sense that every family occasion, every moment that we uh, that we had as a, as a family, whether it was a sitter play, guys, there's source sheets over here if anybody needs. Whether it was a sitter play, whether it was a graduation, or whether it was a smicha, uh, whatever it was, every single thing was uh, was was framed in the sense of. 
can't believe that this is happening in the good way, right? Like we, like we talk about in Rosh Hashanah, we say when, uh, when Sarah receives, when they receive the Psar of Yitzchak and Sarah eventually becomes pregnant, we're going to talk about this soon. So she says, Who told Avram? Who could imagine such a thing would happen? And it's so easy to couch every single thing that we do that there's a Lincoln Square synagogue, that we're gathering together to learn the works of the Piazetzner, that we're gathering together to not just do that, but to honor the memory of the Piazetzner and all the tzaddikim as well. But Mimilel, who would have said that such a thing would happen? And I'm certainly conscious of this in my, uh, in my own upbringing. And, uh, and in fact, every year that I grow older, the truth of this becomes starker and the impact of this becomes starker in everything that we do. Um, my brothers and I like to say that uh, we, we, all of us, in our own special ways, gave our parents a very hard time. And certainly there were uh, different points in our upbringings that one might say that, uh, and this will really be like the last stuff I, I, I really say about myself, uh, because it sort of disgusts me to do this, but, but would say that uh, Josh Rosenfeld would end up a religious Jew. Uh, no less uh, somebody pretending to be a rabbi in a shul uh, would say that that would be ridiculous. Everything that... Uh, I'm going to try my best to keep this in check during these shirim, but I put this part of the disclaimer. But everything that, uh, that we do is because, is because holy blood runs in our veins. Because because, because how could you have a how could you have a kash in Imuna? I'm going to promise my best I'm going to take care of this because otherwise we're not going to learn anything. Um, and this was, this was probably why the hesitation in really giving these shirim in the first is how can you have any kashas in Amuna when you have this generation, this generation of builders and when, that all of us walk in their footstep and that we also have um, shkayach. Takes, takes a gavai to know that. That we have that and that we also, that we have... No, I think it's good. I like the intimacy of this. Um, I don't really, I'm, I'm always surprised. Usually it's big and then everybody realizes like, there's a clown speaking and then they, they, they pass up the next year. But, um, but, uh, but that we also have, besides the next generation, each of us uh, have a Rebbe, whether you know it or not. And the Rebbe is the Piazetzner Rebbe. The Rebbe, was, uh, the Rebbe was, whether you call him the Ish Kodesh, whether you call him the Piazetzner, whether you call him the Kolonim Kam the Shapira. So we have the Piazetzner Rebbe, and the Piazetzner Rebbe left the spiritual heritage for every single Jew uh, nowadays, and it's up to us to decide whether or not we want to tap into it. That uh, doesn't provide answers to the question of the Shoah or the Holocaust, because there are no answers. But it provides, uh, it provides at least somebody to hold on to as we look for answers. And the person that we hold on to is our Rebbe. So even if you're not a Chassid, and uh, certainly uh, there's not really so many Piazetzner Chassidim left in the world nowadays. The Chassidus really stopped and ended with the Rebbe, with the, uh, with the Eish Kodesh. But um, as I mentioned to somebody, really in a certain sense, all of us are Chassidim of the Piazetzner Rebbe, whether we know it or not. And uh, with, that, with those disclaimers issued in the beginning, and uh, with the hisnatzlis, with the apologies, I'm going to do my best to keep my emotions uh, in place, and I beg your indulgence and forgiveness if I'm not able to do so. Um, so Piazetzner Rebbe, and uh, right now, uh, we're really, we're in the week of the Piazetzner's Yortzeit. The Yortzeit uh, was this past Shabbos on Hecheshven, and, uh, and we'll get to how we arrive at that, arrive at that date, how we, how we have that 
but uh, but this is the week. In fact, uh, 1,200 Jews gathered this uh, this Matzei Shabbos together with Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, uh, Marad Asra of, of Kehilas Eish Kodesh in the five towns. Every year they have uh, a Hilula, and the popularity and the this, and the and the. Uh, the, and the and the spreading of the Torah of the Piazetzner is only growing uh, greater and greater. And I think it comes, and this is really maybe one of the first points that I want to illustrate that it, it comes at a no at no better time. It comes at no better time after my Sabbath passed away, and I spoke in Lincoln Square Synagogue. One of the most profound things that impacted was that that people my age. And, and certainly those that were older were lucky enough to really be the last generation of sorts that interacted or had a milieu where Holocaust survivors were in shul with them, that Holocaust survivors, the grandparents were alive. And, uh, and these, these were members of their community. The, the living memory of the Holocaust is fast fading into, in, into just simply a memory. Um, and it's really up to, uh, to, to, to my generation and, and all of us really, and, and especially the next generation, will be really the first generation of Jewish children to grow up without direct access to Holocaust survivors. If you think about it, it's a terrifying thought. So, so the, the fact that the Piazetzner Rebbe is becoming, that, and, and I use the word popularity here, not, uh, we're not talking about uh, music, we're talking about popularity, that people are becoming aware that such a thing exists and becoming aware that there's such a spiritual heritage is coming at no, at, at no more important and no more crucial a juncture for the Jewish people than this time that we inhabit right now. Uh, where it's not far to say that we're within, within a decade or two decades of, of, no, of, of nobody that's ever been in a camp of, uh, you know, they asked one of the Hasidic Rebbes, who himself was a survivor, I believe it was the Kleisenberger. So the story goes, it's, it's such a, a sharp story that became, it took on a life of its own. So he said, Rebbe, you know, what's going to happen when you're gone? You know, who are you going to look to for Amuna? So he said, so when you go to Shul, when you go to Shul, and he said the following, he said, when you go to Shul and you see somebody wrapping tefillin over numbers, he says, that's who you look to. Or I would add, when you go ahead, and you see like a, like a Bobby, a grandmother, going ahead and like Shabbos candles, sending licht with numbers as well. So that's who you look to. Those are Rebbes nowadays. So what happens? What happens when we don't have them? So we have to do our best to preserve. There's been enormous efforts to go ahead and to do so. We have to preserve that memory, especially with the world that not only wishes to deny, but wishes to uh, weaponize our greatest suffering against us. I mean, what other people is Zocha to that sort of thing? That the that the canard, uh, that we're somehow, that the Jewish people are, it's not even worth mentioning, but that, that our worst suffering is used against us. So, so we have an immense responsibility. The responsibility doesn't mean listening to the Yishir, and the responsibility means for everybody to discover it and to, and to go and to chronicle for themselves and to forge their own connections in a personal way. So I want to say thank you in the beginning. Besides you guys for being here, I want to thank uh, a bunch of scholars who have really done most of the work to open up the Piazetzner Rebbe for, for us and, uh, and, to, and to bring his Torah closer to us. The first is Rabbi Dr. Nechemya Polen, who I believe was on the Upper West Side very recently during Shemini Atzeres. Rabbi Dr. Polen, who's now at the Hebrew College, uh, uh, did his doctoral work under Professor Eli Wiesel, if you've heard of him, uh, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Ish Kodesh. He published a book called The Holy Fire, published by Aronson Press, which you can find on Amazon. It's relatively uh, inexpensive. Um, Rabbi Dr. Polen uh, did, 
did some of the first translation work, some of the basic uh, fundamental biographical work and archival work of the Piazetz. And the second is uh, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Reeser of the College in Tzfat, Michlala Akademik Tzfat who uh, did an unbelievable favor to the entire world by going ahead and uh, painstakingly, and in future Shirm, I'll show you what I mean by pain, what we mean by painstaking, painstaking uh, manuscript work and archival work, uh, going ahead and piecing over the manuscripts, correcting errors, sometimes uh, entire lines that were left out of the Ish Kodesh, and, uh, and, uh, and he published a two-volume academic work, uh, and, and virtually in the second volume reprinted the entire work of the Ish Kodesh with full textual emendations and did the world a tremendous favor and really uh, will serve to become the definitive text of the Ish Kodesh, the essential work of the Piazetz Rebbe for all time. Uh, that's, uh, that's Dr. Daniel Reeser and also Rabbi Dr. Henry Abramson, Dean of Turo College. Uh, Dr. Abramson also is another scholar who found himself deeply drawn in and connected to the Piazetzna. And that's what happens when you study the works of Piazetzna's personality and the strength and force of who he was as a human being just jumps out from the text and grabs you in and you feel that you are connecting to a living, breathing person. That's seriously the quality of the work that I feel. And, uh, and, and uh, Rabbi Dr. Abramson did something incredible where he uh, took the Ish Kodesh, and I know that we're, we keep on mentioning this work, we're not going to really touch it until the last two shiurim, um, if I could help it, and, uh, and he did an amazing uh, comparative, a diachronic, diachronic historical study where he compiled all of the archives, and there were many that were taken in the Warsaw Ghetto and preserved for posterity and compared it to the uh, historical dates that were given and really the only identifying, historically identifying material in the drashos of the Rebbe and he went ahead and compared and he showed, was able to show the historical milieu from which the, uh, the up, to, up to the day in which the Rebbe would transmit his, uh, his uh, Chidushe Torah as he called it, Mishnot HaZa'am Chidushe Torah from the years of wrath the name Ish Kodesh comes later, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Finally, uh, second to last, the penultimate scholar is Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Leshem of the Sholem Library in Tel Aviv. And also, I believe he was for a time at the Nishmat uh, Seminary as well. Rabbi Dr. Leshem also wrote his doctoral dissertation at Hebrew University on the Ish Kodesh and has provided a number of very important articles. And his doctoral dissertation is actually, I believe, I hope this is legal. It's available in full text, and I've started to dive into it as well. Uh, unbelievable achievement. And then finally, uh, it's really thanks. Uh, I'm a five towns boy, but this is uh, this, uh, it's not connected to that. And I used to dive in there as well. But to Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, Rabbi Moshe Moshe Weinberger is the Marad Asra of a shul that's named after the Piazetzna or the work that the, the central work of the Piazetzna, Kehillus uh, Eish Kodesh in Woodmere, New York, which has become a fountain of chasidas, a fountain of spiritual fervor of people that are both rekindling their relationship with Judaism and discovering it for the first time through the prism of chasidas. Uh, Rabbi Weinberger uh, does not need my uh, haskama ever. Nobody needs my haskama, but Rabbi Weinberger has probably done more than anybody to popularize the Piazetz Nerebbe and to popularize his works and to turn, to turn, the, to turn the Ish Kodesh into an absolute uh, household name. Um, so, so really, nothing here, almost nothing here that I'm going to say is new. I'm deeply indebted to all of them and if anybody wants a better treatment, I encourage you to go find their works or to listen to their shiurim and, uh, and you'll have a better picture. So let's begin with the timeline and a biography of the Piazetz because before we study his works, we have to know what kind of a man was the Piazetz Nerebbe, what, what is the magnitude of this individual that we're talking about. So uh, we're going to go through 
much of the material is in front of you. 14 Tammuz, 13 July, 1889. Kolonimus Kalman Shapiro is born to Hanabracha Sternfeld and Rolimelech Shapiro of Gridzisk. Who is the Piazetzner's father? His father... <coughs> had been married previously in a marriage that issued no children. Uh, he had two sons in his second marriage, Rav Kolonimus Kalmash, and also his younger brother Yishayahu Shapira, who we'll mention in a moment. Uh, he dies in 1892. He was a chassid of, of Rav Yisrael Mirajin, the Rizhner, who was one of the most important and, uh, and uh, magnificent Hasidic rebbe's in uh, in, in, in Poland and really throughout Europe. He, the originator dies in 1850. Afterwards, Ravelimelech Shapira, the Grzyska, goes ahead and starts his own Hasidus. And we have reports that his Hasidim numbered somewhere in the 10,000s before, uh, before his passing. In 1892, Ravelimelech passes away, orphaning Kolonimus and his younger brother, Ravelimelech, the Piazetzin, is three years old when his father passes away. His brother, Rav Yishayel, will dwell on him for uh, a moment, is worthy of a study in his own right. He was later known as Admora Chalutz. He managed to leave Europe before the breakout of the war, made his way to Eretz Yisrael, helped and aided in the building up of the nascent Yishuv. There's actually, uh, if, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I tweeted a picture of him uh, riding a horse on a, on, on a kibbutz. He went to go live in Kfar Hasidim. Um, he actually dies only two years after his brother is murdered. Of, uh, he had health issues that were obviously compounded by basically the loss of his entire uh, immediate family besides his own children um, who went ahead to become a, a leading lights in the founding of B'nai Akiva and the National Religious Parties. It's a family of Mechanchim, a family of people that do things for Eretz Yisrael and for the Jewish people. Um, Rav Yishayel Shapira became an acolyte of Cook. One of the last svarim that I was given before I left to the airport after my years in yeshiva was from an avreich. I guess this was like a last-ditch attempt to get a few of us to stay in the yeshiva. Uh, the avreich, uh, Rabbi Aviad Sanders, who is a, a great Tamil Chacham and uh, was on Shlichut, I believe, in Toronto for a number of years. He gave us a small book called Eretz Chefetz. And Eretz Chefetz has a, is, is a compilation by the Admora Chalutz of the Eretz Yisrael-related portions, some of the Eretz Yisrael-related portions in the writings of Rav Kook. I, I guess I can't go any sheer without mentioning Rav Kook, Baruch Hashem. Um, and uh, Rav Kolonimus is then sent off to his maternal grandfather, uh, Rav Chaim Shmuel of Chanshin. Chaim Shmuel of Chanshin. And after the death of his grandfather, he becomes raised by his nephew and son of his older half-sister. Right? So remember, there's two marriages. So it's the son of his older half-sister, Rav Yerachmiel Moshe Hapstein of Koshnitz, who is a great-great-grandson of one of the leading lights in all of Hasidus, Talmud of the Yidak, uh, Talmud of the Chose, uh, the, uh, the Koshnitz of Magid, um, and, uh, and so this is the lineage here is, is pristine. The lineage here is, uh, is the a- absolute Hasidic royalty, especially for Polish Hasidus. Uh, in 1905, at the age of 15, he marries Rachel Chaya Hapstein, daughter of Rav Yerachmiel Moshe. Um, she was an incredible woman. Uh, the Piazetzna, for example, writes that, uh, you know, there were times that he went ahead and he, they would learn Torah together. And he said that there were certain times that he would be writing. Apparently, uh, a writer found the Drusha, one of the manuscripts earlier from before the years, that's written first in, in, the, in, the, in, in Rav Kolonimus Kama Shapiro's own hand, and then midway through, it changes. And when he asked, investigated what happened, it turned out that Rav Kolonimus's wife went ahead and finished writing the Drusha for him. Rav Nechemyeh Polen quotes and says that when he was, confr- not confronted, but he was shown this, 
So the Ish Kodesh, the Holy Piazetzner said, the Torah tells us that when a man and a woman get married, Vayula Basar Echad, he says, is there no greater, uh, is there no greater demonstration of Vayula Basar Echad that we finish each other's Divrei Torah, that we're able to finish each other's homilies. She was, uh, she was Eishas Chayil. They say that, um, they say that the year, so she dies in 1937, so you'll see in a few minutes, she dies really before uh, the full outbreak of everything, but she dies, they say, the year after uh, in a particularly difficult Simchas Torah, which for the Piazetzna you have to recognize, and we'll, I'll show you later in his work, Tzavazeros, he writes that that was his absolute highest point of the year. He writes about experiencing a Simchas Torah in better times, and absolutely, he writes out of joy being ready to die on Simchas Torah because he's ready to give his soul over to Kaddish Baruch Hu because he feels he's accomplished everything that a person can feel at least, not uh, in a Yuridika sense, not in an arrogance, but he feels that he's reached the pinnacle of religious feeling. He's ready for God to take his soul. So many years later, the different Simchas Torah, the Hasidim say that he began to sing Yeshus Chayil, and through tears, sing Yeshus Chayil for an hour, lamenting, of course, his loss. And this was after the, uh, the death of his mother as well. Okay. 1909, after his father-in-law passes away, after the death of Yerachmiel Moshe, he assumes the leadership reluctantly at first of Hasidim from both his father-in-law and his father in Piazetzna. Uh, people describe the Ishkodesh, whose picture, whose holy image looks out to us from the top of these source sheets. People describe him as, uh, in person, one of the interviews that Dr. Polen did with survivors when he initially wrote the book and published it in 1994. One of the interviews, he said, what did the Piazetzna look like? What was his presence in person? So he described uh, a man that was very handsome, uh, stood up tall, regal, dressed in the classic Hasidic dress, but was always pristine and perfect in appearance and completely kempt, and uh, managed to comport himself in the most regal of manners. They, uh, the, the interview, he says, he was the most impressive man I ever saw in my entire life. You could not be indifferent to him. Regardless of your reaction to this Hasidic rabbi, there was no such thing as being indifferent to what you saw in the Piazetz Nerebi. In 1913, not only with his Hasidic Hasidim becomes the Goan based and the chief rabbi of Piazetzna as well. And then 28 July 1914, the First World War breaks out. And what the First World War left, uh, even though we don't associate it with the horrors of the Holocaust, Jewish communities certainly suffered to great extents. Many were destroyed and many Jews found themselves wandering around the ruins of Poland and the battlefields of Europe. And what happened was is that there was uh, uh, two uh, distinct two distinct elements that went ahead and created the fertile ground for the Piazetzna to become the educational genius that he became. The first is, is that uh, we, be, we see an urbanization of Hasidus. Uh, Hasidus, which in many, event, in many respects we associate with different towns dispersed throughout Europe and, 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 and the countryside and uh, being mostly maybe a rural phenomenon. In fact, that's its genesis in the Carpathian Mountains with the Baal Shem Tov, an itinerant uh, scholar and preacher and amulet writer. Uh, we find the urbanization of Hasidus and uh, as Marcin Wachiski writes in his historical atlas of Hasidim, showing the concentration, if you'll allow me to use that word at this juncture, of the different Hasidic groups within the major cities of Europe, Warsaw and Blin, seeing the concentration of the, of the Hasidic leaders, it was really for the first time that Hasidim, uh, rank and file Hasidim would rub shoulders with their Hasidic leaders and, and, and this urbanization uh, take, took profound tolls on, um, on, on the educational structures and communal structures that allowed Hasidus to flourish, flourish from one generation to another. Uh, a dual thrust that happened in the post-war years was that there was rampant poverty. Uh, people were starting to realize, hey, we could blame the Jews for these sorts of things. Anti-Semitism started to 
begin to gain steam in the collapse of uh, of the of the German uh, of, of Germany in the wake of their loss, and uh, and and many Hasidim found many. Uh, many Jews, Orthodox Jews, found themselves drawn to other movements and isms, be it Zionism, uh, be it communism, socialism, Yiddishism. They found the Bundists, they found themselves drawn to that. So this is the dual Edgar uh, Chinochi educational challenge that the Piazetzna contends with. So therefore, seeing the need, seeing the need for this in 19... 19- uh, 1923, he opens up his yeshiva, yeshiva's Das Moshe in Warsaw, which is uh, which at, which in a few years became one of the largest Hasidic yeshivas in Warsaw, and really becomes more than the Piazetna, more than I want us to think of the Piazetna as the Warsaw ghetto rabbi. The Piazetna is an educator, is a rabbi of education in Ish Chinuch, with profound insight into human nature, profound insight into how we teach Jewish children, and really how we teach anybody from the young ages all the way uh, throughout their lives. In 1932, uh, culminating with his educational, his educational output, the Piazetsen publishes his first Sefer, Sefer Chovas Tamidim, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Ten Tamas, 19 June 1937, is the passing of the, uh, of the wife of the Piazetsen, Rachel Chai and Miriam, and uh, apparently the Piazetsen was a skilled violinist. They said that from that point on, he never picked up his violin again and never played Nigunim on his violin again. September 1939 is the commencement of the Nazi bombing of Warsaw, which brings the city to its knees. Rav Kolonimus' son, Rili Melech Ben Sion, his only son, his daughter-in-law Gittel, and his uncle are all killed in the bombardment. We have a report. We have a report of uh, in the 1940s. Uh, uh, a, forward, uh, uh, a writer for the forward uh, by the name of La- Le- Luzer Kahan uh, pr- uh, published a, um, an account of the Rebbe. Uh, first, his son had uh, been, they were sitting in their, in their house, which they had a, a house which had a few floors in it. And on the fourth floor was the living quarters. And underneath was, on the subsequent floors, were, were, uh, was a base madrash, was a, a shtibel. And uh, no doubt at that time already with the first influx of wartime refugees, uh, people whose houses had been bombed out. That house had been spared. Uh, it was 5 Volniki Street, if I remember correctly. And the, the, so no doubt people were already sleeping in the base medrash at night, but, but prayers and, 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 and all Hasidic way of life continued throughout this time. During this initial bombardment, uh, the Piazetzner's family had been largely spared. However, uh, they described that as they were standing in a bedroom, a piece of shrapnel from one of the bombs comes in and gravely wounded his son, Rav Melech Ben Sion, in the arm. And he began to bleed profusely. And they described, and it's the most harrowing thing, if you can imagine, the Rebbe going from hospital to hospital, begging to be let in. They're turned away again and again, and uh, they finally end up at a Red Cross clinic that's been set up, and they stand vigil outside. His son, per, uh, his son uh, manages to persevere for another few days until he finally passes away. His wife, the, the Piazetzner's daughter-in-law, does not leave uh, his bedside, and at the entrance of the hospital, the hospital itself is bombed, and the Piazetzner's daughter-in-law is killed, and then, and then soon thereafter, after making Kiddush on Shabbos, the Piazetzner's son, really Melech Ben Sion, is killed as well. Um, 7 Marcheshvan, 20 October 1939. So this is, this is the time we're talking about now is the, uh, is the death of his mother, Chana Bracha. I guess her yard site will be tomorrow. Her yard site will be tomorrow or today. Is today Zayin Cheshvan? Tonight, right now. Check it out, okay? So, we, so, 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 so we're doing the, the Piazetzner's yard so it was on Shabbos, Parshas Noach. Uh, so this is the death of his mother. She died of, uh, of a heart attack, a broken heart, however you want to say it. She succumbed. Um, 
at this point, the Warsaw Ghetto is beginning to be formed. The Piazetzner is offered a chance to escape. The Piazetzner uh, refuses to say, and he says, I will not desert my Hasidim, and thus seals his fate. But also, uh, not only sealing his fate, but, but seals his role in history for forevermore. I think we would have heard of the Piazetzner regardless because of his great works in Chinuch, but what really catapults the Piazetzner to the absolute firmaments is, is what happens from this point on. Uh, 19... Uh, October 1940, Rav Kolonimus is trapped inside the Warsaw Ghetto with about 400,000 other Jews. Just to give you a picture, the Warsaw Ghetto was 1.3 square miles, so that means roughly uh, something like 10 Jews to a single room, if you want to go ahead and, uh, and work the math out of that. Absolutely deplorable conditions. And he begins to teach Torah and to set up facilities for religious life in the ghetto. For example, the Piazetzner's cousin and one of the chief religious correspondents for the Onik Shabbos group, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, Rabbi Shimon Huberbrand describes uh, a secret system of mikvos that were set up, and he describes, and, and you, you almost can't believe he describes how one night they're, they're, they're told uh, word approaches them that there is a mikvah for the Rebbe to go ahead and to immerse himself in. They traverse the entire ghetto, they climb through a tunnel, at one point they jump, and finally, in hushed tones, they're shown to a cistern and they're able to go ahead and be tovel for Shabbos Kodesh. Um, and, and Rav Kolonimus continues to teach Torah. We have a report in the forward article at that time that Rabbi Shapira is also writing a book, which no doubt was a direct reference to Sefer Eish Kodesh, which was then in manuscript form. The Rebbe would go after each drasha, which were usually given in Yiddish on Shabbos, and rewrite them, uh, either himself or apparently some people surmise one or two other scribes would go ahead and transcribe and make emendations on the Torah that was given on Shabbos. So these are the manuscripts that the Rebbe was setting up. In 1942 is the mass deportation of 254,000 residents of the ghetto to Treblinka, including his daughter. So Piazetzner's daughter, we don't know exactly what the date of her death was. And uh, Piazetzner, in the Eish Kodesh, in his talk about in a moment, Piazetzner writes, still with the hope that she's still alive, with still a hope that uh, perhaps there was hope for her. So the precious, gentle, modest Rachel Yehudas is deported as well. April 1933 is the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, and it's quashed, and the Warsaw Ghetto is, is finally liquidated afterwards. 1943, Rav Kolonimus is sent to the Tranicki slave labor camp and murdered in the SS action harvest season in or around the 3rd of November. The date of the Piazetzner's death is marked as Heicheshven, which was this past Shabbos Noach. December 1950, Polish construction worker, uh, in the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto, uncovers two metal milk cans sunk into the foundation of 68 Noah Lipke Street, and he discovers the Onik Shabbos archive. What was the Onik Shabbos archive? Under the direction of the bibliophile and scholar and historian Emanuel Ringelblum, as a kind of spiritual resistance to hero- and heroism, he gathered up as many writers, historians, and, and correspondents together to document everything that they possibly could about what they, what they perceived to be the waning days of European Judaism. And the Onyx, they called themselves almost like as, um, almost like in a, I don't know if it's facetious or cynical, but they called themselves the Onyx Shabbos group. Uh, uh, important amongst them was Rabbi Shimon Huberbrand, uh, who we mentioned already, who gives also first-hand reports of spending Shalashudas with the Rebbe and the mikvah incident that we talked about right now. 
Um, pretty much all of them were murdered as well, but they decided to preserve their reports for posterity in these two milk cans, and they were discovered in the foundations, and uh, and there they lie in the Jewish Historical Institute of Warsaw. 1956, Baruch Duv Devani, an Israeli diplomat, and, uh, and, and uh, I guess an adventurer of sorts, is dispatched to go ahead and to find what Hasidim mentioned was that the Rebbe was indeed writing this book do the manuscripts exist? And he goes ahead and he writes that he's about to leave uh, his mission unfinished and uh, his, his objective unaccomplished. And uh, by, uh, by chance, he discovers a letter, which I'll show you in a moment, a cover letter, which leads him to the rest of Rav Kolonimus Kalmish Shapiro's writings, including Hachsharis Avrechim, Mavo Asharim, Tzav Zeruz, and also what later became known as the Eish Kodesh, which was not the original title that the Piazetz negate for his farim. The original title was Chidushe Torah Mishnos Zaam. In my eyes, as beautiful as the name Eish Kodesh is, that this talked about the almost the the the, the heroic normalcy which with the Piazetzna approached this, that he was giving Chidushe Torah, he was giving Torah insights. And the context was different, but the Torah doesn't change. The Torah is the same Torah, and the Torah has a language to speak to this kind of thing. And as we'll talk about in, in, in subsequent shirim, there is no direct reference at all throughout the Eish Kodesh, throughout Chidushe Torah Mishnah Am, that refers to the Nazis, or the Holocaust, or any specific instance that happens to them. All we have to go on is the dates. All we have to go on is, is oblique references. And in certain places it becomes, the Rebbe does let a word slip, but almost no direct reference whatsoever. And Chidushe Torah Mishnah I think, goes ahead and puts an exclamation point and punctuates just what the Rebbe thought he was doing, in which, uh, and, and I'll, I'll refer you now to the words of, of, of Professor Abramson, who says that this is the most sustained, whether you consider this the work of Hasidus or, or, or Drushus, whatever you look at this, this is the most sustained Jewish attempt to grapple with the Odyssey, with the problem of evil, with the problem of suffering since Eov, since Sefer Eov. And I believe that that assessment is correct. Sustained engagement with it. There was an article written, one of the first academic articles was written that went ahead and uh, sort of dismissed a little bit um, the, the work of Eish Kodesh as being a, a disjointed collection of, of uh, different theological attempts. The, at least I think now the prevailing impulse is to see this as a unified work. Uh, even though there's skips and dates, it doesn't cover every parsha. It is a unified work and with a unified purpose, which is to offer a unified uh, theodicy to deal with the problem of the evil, not just then, but in all times. In all times. And, uh, and that's, and, and meaning just as, just as relevant and just as uh, as tied into the Holocaust that Eish Kodesh is, it's also tied into any form of Jewish suffering and any form of, of call that a person, that a Jew can make to their God and say, Keli, Keli, Lama Zaftani. My God, my God, why have you done this? Or my God, Lama Hari Amazeh. Why have you done such, why have you done like this to your nation? Why is, why is this the lot of the Jewish people? So that is, uh, that is the, the finding, the amazing finding that Devani wrote, and he, he, he ended up testifying about it later during the Eichmann trials to talk about this finding. And then in 1960, we have the first publishing of Sefer Eish Kodesh. The name again is given by the Hasidim. And nowadays in 2006, 2016 or 17, uh, Professor Reiser let, uh, 
published, uh, corrected, and updated edition, which uh, at least uh, Professor Abramson feels should become the standard edition because of the important, uh, the important changes and the important shinuye uh, changes in, in, uh, in not just in diction, but major sentences that were left out, the major crossings out, and he did that painstaking work. What were the Piazetzner's works? Piazetzner's work, starting from the top right, is the H. Kodesh, that is the frontispiece of the first edition that was published in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, just a word that we skipped before. The name of the Piazetzner is Kolonimus Kalmin, but he called himself Kolonimus Kalmish, as you could see in that uh, colophon over there. And the reason is, is because he held that he was being named after his mother's great-great-grandfather, the Hasidic luminary, the Balma Orva Shemesh, of Kolonimus Kalmish, uh, Kolonimus Kalmin Epstein of Krakow, uh, who's the author of the great Hasidic work, the Orva Shemesh. The Piazetzner said, there's no way that I could walk around calling myself Kolonimus Kalman when Ad How could I ever approach the footsteps of my uh, great ancestor with whom I'm named after? So he chose to call himself in the diminutive of Kolonimus Kalmish uh, for the rest of his life. And indeed, you see that, that what, that's what became uh, his name as published in these colophons. Moving over to the next one. Is Kuntzis Chovas Talmidim. This is the only work that the Piazetzna had published in his lifetime. Chovas Talmidim is an educational tract, but not just an educational tract. What the Piazetzna saw was in the interwar years, in the interbellum years of uh, of Europe. He saw a waning of the light of the Baal Shem Tov. He saw that the spontaneity, the joy, the creativity, and the, uh, and the innovation that had marked the early spread of Hasidus and had set European Jewry on fire with the love of God and the love of Torah and mitzvahs and took ordinary Jews and raised them to the loftiest heights. So the Piazetzna saw a waning in that enthusiasm and decided to write Chovas Talmidim to try and return joy, to try and return uh, a perspective to teach uh, Hasidish young light and Jewish children had to rediscover that thing to maybe recover and I guess this ties in together with our shir from last year to recover what the Baal Shem Tov was trying to inculcate in Jewish people. Uh, Hillel Zeitlin the great Hillel Zeitlin, Shem Yikom Damo also a, a figure worthy of studies in his own right, wrote a review of the Chovas Hamidim when it had first come out. He was very active in the Yiddish press at the time. Uh, later on Zeitlin who was an absolutely profound uh, uh, thinker in his own right, somebody that uh, later became deeply drawn to Hasidus. He writes the following, he said, this book is a gateway. And listen to these words very carefully as we learned this in 2018. This book, is a gateway for anyone, in particular for the modern Jew, who has felt the calling to return to his tradition, the word that Zeit, the word Zeitlin uses, the turn of phrase, any Jew that has had the flesh or the inspiration to return to their creator in truth, this book is for them to enter into the palace of Hasidism and everything that the Torah of the Baal Shem Tov has to author and the tzaddikim that came after him. Turning now to, uh, I guess we're not going clockwise or counterclockwise, but the bottom right is the threefold work, Sefer Hachshar Savreichim, Sefer Mavosh Sha'arim, and Sefer Tzav Vezerus. So Hachshar Savreichim is the second work in the Piazetzna, what the Piazetzna imagined to be really a trilogy of educational works to lead somebody as they moved along in their development as a religious Jew. Hachshar Zavreichim is meant, Avreich nowadays we say to like a, a, a Bachar learning kolel, happens to be married, so we call him an Avreich, uh, the young, uh, young men. Hachshar uh, Zavreichim, even though it's a full work in its own right, was only meant to be uh, part of an introduction to what was going to later be called Chovas Avreichim, which never was published. Hachshar 
Yosef Reichim was in manuscript during the Rebbe's lifetime and as an emphasis on a number of the, of the profound educational ideas. What do I mean when I say profound educational ideas of Piazetna? There is an emphasis on channeling and development of emotion in the service of God, an emphasis on song, music, and dance. The Piazetna writes oftentimes that the goal is to uncover the soul, to reveal the soul from the dras that's covered it up. Uh, the Piazetna innovated such ideas such as the Machshava Chazaka. The Piazetna tells us that a person could go ahead and they could, they could focus their thoughts to the elimination of all outside thoughts to go ahead and to focus an intense concentration on a single thing that could go ahead and that could lead a person to achieving dveikas, cleaving together with their God. A next, uh, a next idea is the concept of hashkata. Hashkata you hear now uh, when, uh, when you have like maybe Jewish meditation seminars. The Piazetzna is one of the, uh, the forebears of Jewish, uh, modern Jewish meditation. It's always been a tradition in Judaism, meditation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you could refer to Rabbi Arya Kaplan's masterful two works. Jewish meditation, also meditation in Kabbalah, where Ravari Kaplan does more than anybody in history to go ahead and recover the, tra- uh, the tradition of Jewish meditation, a uh, sense of Judaism as an Eastern religion. Uh, Hashkata means quietly, uh, quieting everything out, also related to the Machshava Chazaka, where the Piazetzna talks about trying to achieve just for once Machshava Achas Shal Kedusha, no matter how low one person feels, no matter how uh, disconnected or separated a person feels. Our goal should be to try and achieve just one thought of holiness and a person, Piazetzna says that itself opens up the path to tshuva. And finally, and maybe at least for me most remarkably, is the Piazetzna's emphasis on the power of imagination in teaching Torah. The Piazetzna writes, for example, I'll give you a couple of wild examples where he talks about this. He says, imagine that you're a student learning in Navi in, uh, in, in yeshiva or in day school. So he says, what, what, what you should do when you study Joshua and the Israelites walking around the walls of Jericho, he says, it's not enough to just read Rashi. It's not enough to read the Mitzvah David. It's not enough to go ahead and look in the art school and understand the English translation of the Pasuk or whatever language you speak. He says, what you have to do is you have to close your eyes tight and you have to imagine yourself participating walking and circumambulating around the walls of Jericho, hearing the trumpets, feeling the ground uh, uh, tremble underneath your feet as those walls come down. He says, the power of imagination, words of the prophets, are not necessarily just for us to go ahead and to learn and to say, okay, I've cognated something intellectually and, and now I've, in one moment, I've, 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 I've internalized something in an intellectual sense. He says, the words of the prophets don't stop with the destruction of Esamekdash. When we read Navi, it should become part of, it should be infused, it should become an experience. He writes, we're going to see, he says, as you see Avraham and Yitzchak saddling their donkeys to go ahead to the monumental Akedah, he says, imagine that you're along for the ride. He says, imagine that you're walking along with them. Imagine you're a Jew in the desert. Close your eyes. Maybe that will be your machshava achas shel kedusha, that you'll be able to, 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 to put yourself in that position. And he says, furthermore, we have access to this because we are possessing of the same soul that experienced those things in the first place. So that is the, uh, that is the, uh, the amazement of Ashara Savechim and Vosha'arim, which were meant to be introductory work. Finally, at the end of that work is appended a spiritual biography, a spiritual a diary of the Piazetzna called Savazera's Remarkable. That's where he talks about his feelings of wanting to just be consumed by fire while dancing uh, for Simchas Torah. The Piazetzna writes about meeting certain people, conversations he has with certain Jews that are quite broken. He talks about one Jew that comes to him and says at the end of his life, for example, I spent my whole life as an Orthodox Jew, a Shomer Torah, mitzvahs. And, uh, and he says, but 
It's never been true throughout my entire life. And he says, now I'm going to die. And the Piazetna records his conversation with this Jew. This was his diary and it's preserved now for posterity. Finally, and I'll take a question in a moment. The final work that we have is a small contrast, the smallest of the Piazetna's works, and really what might be the final stage in the Piazetna's educational um, his educational volumes, which is B'nai Machshava Tova. B'nai Machshava Tova, I like to, I like to think that the Piazetzin was only able to become the Eish Kodesh because he wrote the work B'nai Machshava Tova. B'nai Machshava Tova was a work that was originally not meant to be popular, not meant to be disseminated. Uh, it was meant to be a secret document, like a Samizdat of sorts. Uh, and it was meant to, uh, to be uh, the workings and the program for the formulation of a spiritual fraternity, spiritual circle, spiritual society for like-minded religious seekers to go ahead and to strengthen each other in the Bechina of Ish Yisrael Yazer Lechiv Lamar Chazak that if you want to find uh, Rebbe's so you could certainly travel to whatever Rosh Yeshiva or Hasidic Rebbe or Shul Rabbi or, 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 or anybody that uh, or teacher or, uh, or a religious figure that you seek out the most immediate greatest Rebbe that you'll have will be your friends will be those people going through the spiritual struggles together with you the name Achshavatova which we will look inside in Mir Hashem in the next uh, the next week when we go ahead and we take a look at the educational works in depth uh, really we could spend the rest of the year in the Piazetzer but uh, but uh, we have other teachers and uh, and we'll have a whole robust fall offering but uh but the Piazetzner uh, writes, for example, he says, within the circle, it sounds like somebody uh, was presaging the, uh, the, the, the big book for Alcoholics Anonymous. He says that you sit around in a circle and you reveal the, uh, the struggles, you reveal the failures that you've had and another person with the understanding that we're all in this together. That word appears again and again. Chaveirus, a friendship. Connecting to God means connecting to the person next to you as well. That chaveris, the ischabras, means that I'm able to go ahead and be libi, the deepest things that exist in the recesses of my heart. And in that way, a person will come to do tshuva. That is the safer b'nei mach We had a question. Yeah. Uh, Two-part two question. The sure. source that you said about uh, the experience of Yericha, where is that? That appears in Achshar of I think... Uh, I don't want. I think it's like sixty pages in. I'll 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 I'll, bring, I'll be bringing it to you guys. The question is, uh, Shlomo Kalbach, when he talked about the assessment, he made it sound that he was a rebbe for little children. Incorrect. I mean, the Piazetzna, there were, there were uh, younger grades that were in the yeshiva. Look, I, 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 never, I didn't hear this. And uh, uh, Look, who am I? But uh, as far as we know, they, he had Hasidim. Uh, there, were many, uh, there were many adults, people that uh, surrounded themselves around the Piazetzna. Piazetzna certainly taught children, but there were people that went up to uh, the ages of uh, Kolel and, uh, and, uh, and more mature ages as well. Uh, I, I don't know if that's... Definitely not meant to be a diminutive or whatever, but uh, but certainly he, he couldn't be characterized as a as 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 simply a school teacher. Although I bet if you would ask the Piazetzna, uh, right? I think that so maybe he would go ahead. No, no, and I'm saying uh, uh, I'm saying maybe he would say that that was indeed his uh, his yehud, his purpose. But 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 that's uh, that's certainly not uh, the historical evidence is that he was indeed a Hasidic rebbe and a gaonav beistin, right? He was the head of the beistin for a large city as well. So uh, I don't know if that's borne by his borne out by historical fact. Um, anyway, let's uh, take a look. Turning to the next page. So I I told you that um, after discovery of those milk cans. Uh, in, uh, when uh, Duvdevani came in 1956 to the Warsaw Jewish Historical Archive, this was the following letter that jumped out at him. 
attention. And you can look at the reproduction of the Piazetzner's handwriting on top. Blessed is God. I have the honor of requesting the esteemed individual or institution that finds my enclosed writings, Achshar Savrechem, Mavoash Arim from Chova Savrechem, Tzavazerus, Torah insights from the weekly readings for the years 5700, 5701, and 5702, to please exert themselves to send them to the land of Israel to the following address, Rabbi Yeshaya Shapira, Tel Aviv, Palestine. Please also send the enclosed letter, which appears right underneath this attention. When the Blessed One will show mercy, and I and the remaining Jews survive the war, please return all materials to me or to the Warsaw Rabbinate for Colonimus, and may God have mercy upon us, the remnant of Israel in every place, and rescue us and sustain us and save us in the blink of an eye. With deep, heartfelt gratitude, Colonimus. The evening before the second day of the week of Parshat Ve'era, 27 Tevet, 5703, that date is Sunday evening, January 3rd, 1943. So this represents, this cover letter represents what will basically be, what will basically be, I'll say it at the end. This is the cover letter. This is the cover letter, and this is what led to the discovery of the rest of the documents. So this is... um, this is what led to the discovery of these works. Rabbi, Rabbi Polen writes, when studying the Piazetzner, and I guess uh, the whole shir is really one big disclaimer. Rabbi Polen writes, and this was his doctoral work, he said in source number one on page three, there are many reasons this work was slow to reach completion. He says it took him 15 years to reach it for publishing. Not the least of these was my difficulty in gazing at the awesome pain of that period for extended lengths of time. The work often, proce- often preceded by off-axis vision, like we can't stare at the sun directly. As a naked eye astronomer might view a heavenly body, except that in this case the phenomenon radiated darkness rather than light. I must confess at this point my unbounded admiration for Rabbi Shapiro's achievement. For if I had a difficulty confronting the topic at a remove of almost 50 years, what inner strength did it take to maintain a stable center and communicate a luminous vision of faith while in the heart of darkness itself? And before the shear is out today, I believe that perhaps we will have an answer to... To, to, to Rabbi Polen's question, um, and I think, I think we, we can identify the very moment that Rabbi Kolonimus Kalma Shapir, the Piazetz Narebi, becomes what will later be known as the Eish Kodesh. I think we can identify it to the moment, and you see what I mean. Turning the page, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger. Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, as he did this, Shabbos has led a number of Hilulot, a number of uh, gatherings in honor and in memory of the Eish Kodesh, and one of his uh, Tamidim, one of his close Hasidim, I guess you could say, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Yamin Wolf, went ahead and uh, painstakingly put them together and put out a book uh, together with Feldheim called Warm by the Fire of the Ish Kodesh, recording Rav Weinberger's drashos. Rav Weinberger describes uh, uh, encountering the Sefer Ish Kodesh for the first time, and I'll just preface this that by saying Rabbi Weinberger's Haskam and his approbation to Professor Abramson's work that came out last year, he writes, he says, the Sefer Ish Kodesh has not left the desk in my library for the past 40 years. That it's been on my desk, and, it, and basically I think what he means to say is that it guides to no small extent everything he's done as uh, one of the religious phenomena of modern Orthodox Judaism and really all of American Judaism uh, in our day and age. He writes the following thing describing the encounter. One day, source number two, a small thin safer came my way entitled Eish Kodesh. I spent the next two days learning it, consuming it from cover to cover. I read the brief, beautiful biography by Aaron Saraski that was included in the volume. That's in here as well in the Feldtime edition. It's been reprinted as well. Here at last, the heart of the tzaddik was unveiled. 
In Eish Kodesh, the Rebbe gave a voice, words, sentences, paragraphs to all that my parents and the other survivors wanted to say but could not. These bereft, faithful Jews were not interested in Holocaust memorials or Holocaust literature. I could at the very least testify that my Saba is definitely amongst them. He wanted no part of any of that. Though they were starving for Torah, true, deep, authentic Torah taught by a tzaddik whose life like theirs was interrupted. They needed to know that he too, the great Rebbe of Piazetzna, was tormented by the Hester Panim, the fact that God's face was hidden, that he was crushed by his personal losses. By the time the Piazetzna Rebbe was killed and murdered, he was saying Kaddish for no less than six close immediate relatives. The fact that God's face was hidden, that he was crushed by his personal losses, but that he never wavered in his faith in Hashem's love or in his belief in the future of Hashem's nation. I want to correct one thing. In that volume, it does say that the Piazetzna uh, left these works to us so that we would have them after he died, or that there was some sort of an act of despair that the Piazetzna uh, secreted away his, uh, his manuscripts together with the rest of the Onik Shabbos archive. If you go back and take a look at that cover letter that we looked at, I don't think such a thing is, uh, is true. I don't think anything of a sort. Piazetzna fully expected to live. Piazetzna fully expected to continue to publish his works in Yerushalayim. Piazetzna fully expected maybe to one day teach the next generation on his own. He chose life. He chose life up to absolute last moment. That was the Piazetzna Rebbe. His faith not only in HaKadosh Baruch who never wavered, but his faith in our ability and in Judaism's ability to, to pull itself out of these ashes that had already begun to pile up around them never wavered for a moment. And finally, and I mentioned to you, and this will be the second to last thing we say today, um, I turn to you to a translation by, by Rabbi Dr. Polen of the article published in The Forward in March 30th, 1940, by Lazar Kahan, where he describes the Piazetzna Rebbe during the period of the first bombing of Warsaw. And I think that if we want to identify the moment where this great, monumental, really, educational theorist and Hasidic Rebbe and teacher goes ahead and transforms into, into a modern-day author of a book of Eov, into a modern-day bastion of faith in the wake of the Shoah, so I think it comes here. At the end of his account, he says that they spent the night waiting, crying, and shuddering. It was a terrible night of waiting for the Rebbe and those close to him. Throughout the night at the entrance to the hospital, he recited psalms and prayed for the welfare of his beloved son. The Rebbe, accompanied by a few Hasidim, went to the home of the hospital doctor and asked him to come save his son. While the Rebbe was looking away for a doctor, a bomb fell at the hospital entrance, killing those present. Among those lost were the young wife of the Rebbe's son, Gittel Shapira, daughter of the Belchatove Rebbe, his sister-in-law from the Holy Land, Chana Chapstein. And you can imagine the pain of the Rebbe's Chassid when they came back to the hospital with the doctor. For a time. The Hasidim who were with the Rebbe thought he would collapse, though this lasted only for a moment. So here's the moment, right here. The Rebbe composed himself, recited the verse the Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. Hashem Natan, Hashem Lakach, Yishem Hashem Evorach. And directed that the deceased be taken to the cemetery for eulogy and burial. If we could find that inflection point. At this moment, anybody would be forgiven for collapsing, for losing faith, for falling apart. And we may have never heard of the Rebbe again, and we may have never received the Kodesh or these drushas. At this moment, the Rebbe, I think, we could only surmise, we could only say, at a remove now of more, of more of 70 years, right? We could only say that at this point, the Piazetzna transforms and accepts the mission that God has thrust upon him, that it is going to be his job to continue to lead the Jewish people and those who had suffered tremendous losses around him as well. Final words of Hasidus published in Poland. 
ending nearly 200 years of Hasidus, over 200 years from the dawn of the Baal Shem Tov, from the dawn of the Baal Shem Tov in 1700. The final words of Hasidus, published right underneath that open cover letter from the Piazetz Rebbe, is an epitaph. It's an epitaph for his holy mother, who is the daughter and the scion and the queen of Hasidus that came from a long line, all the way up, that directly traced its roots to Tamidim of Baal Shem Tov, for his daughter-in-law, also from a Hasidic family, and then finally for his son, Rabbi Melech ben Sion, who showed the Piazetz, there's so much promise, and in many senses was going to be his legacy that was so quickly taken away. Those are the final words. These three epithets are the final words of Hasidus, final words maybe of Torah, penned in a destroyed Europe, in destroyed Judaism. So what we're going to do with for the next few weeks is we're going to study the words. We're going to find out how we get to this person. I, I didn't go through it, but on the last two pages I reproduced, uh, I think as best as I possibly could, uh, two maps showing, uh, showing the, the, the moving around in uh, Poland during the Holocaust of the different Rebbes, and it shows where Warsaw is, where Piazetzny is relating to Warsaw. Uh, this comes from the historical atlas of Hasidism that just came out from Arsene Wachowski, uh, which is an amazing work, which maybe we'll return to. And, um, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to spend next week, we're going to look at the Piazetzny's educational theorist as a Rebbe, and then in Mir Tzashem, we're going to transition to the, last, to the last weeks. We're going to be looking directly at this, I guess, at this dark sun ourselves and taking a look at the Ishkosh. I thank everybody for coming, and I hope everybody has